0: Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Kriesman,
1: And I'm Ira Kriesman.
0: And on this episode, we continue our conversation on the plot, themes, and characters of Final Fantasy VI. Last we left our heroes, they had just brokered an uneasy peace with the Empire and were off on an expedition headed by General Leo to try to settle another peace with the Espers, or so they've been told. So we make our way to the town of
1: Albrook. The music is different now, as you said, now that the occupation is over. We can make our way down to the docks, no longer guarded by giant magitek-armored soldiers. Leo is on the boat, and he explains that uh, another general of the Empire and a mercenary I hired in town are coming with us. And hey, we know another general of the, of the Empire, Celeste. And we know a mercenary, Shadow! And so, Yeah,
0: uh, fun little reunion.
1: Yeah, Celeste and Shadow are coming with us, which is pretty cool. Before we head out, Leo has arranged for lodging. We're going to leave in the morning, so we have to go up and sleep in the inn. Shadow gets this neat little line here. I think this is a version of, like, Shadow's... This is a Shadow joke, right? This is his version Mm -hmm. of humor. He says, I may be working for the Empire, but don't worry. I'm not going to garrote you. Like, oh, good. You're not going to kill me in my sleep? Thanks, Shadow. (laughs) I really appreciate that.
0: Yeah, thanks, buddy.
1: At the inn, Locke can't sleep, so he goes outside. And this kind of reminds me of that scene in Final Fantasy IV where Edward goes outside and, and ends up speaking with the ghost of Anna. Mm-hmm. In this case, Celeste is standing at the railing looking out over this little canal, and Locke tries to talk to her, and she's she doesn't respond. And he, he says, you know, even if it was only a little, I doubted you, but I'm still your friend. Uh, she... I don't know if she's not buying it or she's not having it, but she walks away. Maybe she just, you know, maybe she doesn't want to have this conversation right now. Maybe it's it's too much. But, it, I mean, he did doubt her, and I can understand why both of them are upset with each other.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And she also wasn't honest with him.
1: Right. Right.
0: And bears some responsibility, and I think this is more what's going on and, and this will become a huge thing for her moving forward. We are talking about that soldier earlier whose life will never be the same because he's slain too many people. Right. Goodness gracious me, Celeste. That feeling times a hundred or a yeah. thousand.
1: The butcher of Miranda, right? Yeah. And her power comes at the expense of tortured espers. Right. And, and, and. Yeah, all right. right. So uh, we get on the boat. We have this scene where we just see it sailing around uh, the south of the Imperial Continent. That evening, Terra gets to have a conversation with Leo. I've always liked Leo. We've only seen him a little bit here, but he's a good guy. He he asks, are you all right? You look like you're feeling better. And I kind of have to wonder, better than when? Like, better than the last time you saw her when she was being used as a weapon of the Empire to fry <laughs> Magitek soldiers. Like, were you right. there for that? It's not really clear. I I think just that Tara often looks like she's probably deep in her own thoughts. Either way, uh, he he's very cordial to her. Uh, she's She explains that this feels weird because she feels like she's cooperating with the enemy. Leo gets to say, uh, you know, people are people. Not all of us are like Kefka, which parallels what Edgar said several scenes ago when he said, you know, not, you know, we're fighting against the Empire. We're not fighting against every citizen of the Empire. Yeah. Leo does acknowledge, though, he says, I knew you were being used as a weapon, and I didn't do anything about it, and that makes me as bad as Kefka. Hmm. And and Tara gets to kind of, you know, he, Sid, has only kind of taken responsibility for what he did. Gestalt is uh, obviously fibbing about it, but Leo here seems to really feel like he's taken responsibility like, not necessarily yeah. for being a soldier, but for, like, not intervening. If, if he's older, like, you know, if they were sort of raised together, but he's, you know, five, six years older, he didn't, he didn't step in when experiments were being run on her. He didn't say, you know, this is wrong, Sid. This is wrong, Gustavo. Right. And, and he acknowledges that, and I really appreciate that. And then we go to Tara's running theme, and she asks him, do you, know, do you think I will ever be able to love somebody? And he says, of course. And she says, but I haven't felt it yet. And, and Leo says, well, you know, you're young, I, but I understand what you mean. And so I kind of, I always thought, or when, the first several times I played this when I was a teenager, I wondered if Tara was wondering if she had feelings for Leo. Me too. And I think that could, you know, that could be a really sweet relationship to have. Uh, and, and when he says, I understand what you mean, that would suggest that he, too, has not been able to find somebody he can connect with like that, probably because of his, you know, his job in the Empire.
0: Right. He's been a soldier since the time he was a kid, and so is she in many ways with all his other stuff on top of it. Neither one of them have had people they've been able to create that kind of close attachment to.
1: So Leo leaves, Terra stays, and then uh, she says, Hey, who's there? And Shadow comes out of the shadows hmm. and he says, I thought I would sleep under the stars. And Tara's like, Oh my God, did you, did the ninja overhear my heart to heart with general Leo? Right. And shadow says, look, I didn't mean to overhear. And she sort of, it sort of makes it seem like Terra's going to now ask his advice. And he's like, no, no, I can't help you with this. He says, you must look within for answers. And there's, there's some wisdom there. You know, this is again, a guy who's been a fighter, a killer, a mercenary for who knows how many years he's got a his own tragic backstory we're going to get into when we start having those dreams and he, he has this line where he says in this world there are many like me who have killed their emotions just keep that in mind
0: yeah that's one of his best lines of the game and that's one of the parts where we start to kind of peel back the ninja mask and the the darkness and, well, all of the shadows, Ira, and, <laughs> and see that there's a, a human being under there, like you said, with, with some wisdom. And he's reached the conclusion maybe that it's, it's too late for him, but this young girl uh, doesn't have to become like him.
1: Right. But it's also worth noting, and maybe we should just go ahead and talk about it now. He agreed to go on this mission to Thamasa. He knows who's there.
0: Yeah, he hasn't killed off his emotions nearly as well as he seems to think he has. Um, yeah. But th- but he is, that's part of, I think, why he's there, almost living vicariously through Terra in that moment of, like, maybe I can get it back. Maybe it's not too late for me. So he's saying it out loud, but, again, how much does he truly believe it, and how much can he, the older person, draw inspiration from the younger person, yeah, to find nice. that part of himself
1: I dig it I like that a lot uh, we've talked before these, these characters become a family to each other they are what drives them to do the right thing and so yeah seeing, seeing Shadow perhaps you know having made this choice to go to the town where potentially some parts of his family are uh, and drawing some inspiration from this young woman who's still struggling to find out what love means that's really nice yeah and then, just to be thorough, Locke comes on deck and is seasick, and it plays that goofy music that plays when goofy things happen.
0: <laughs> and seasickness or, or sickness in travel is a, a thing that happens in Final Fantasy regularly for some reason. There's parallels with Yuffie Kisaragi in the next game, who right. cannot handle being on an airship.
1: <laughs> so our heroes split into two groups. Celeste and Leo are going to go search one area. Terra, Locke, and Shadow are going to the town of Thamasa. The the music playing here is not the regular town theme, but rather Strago's theme, which I knew and didn't have to be reminded of by my brother. <laughs> Uh, and they don't like strangers here. If you try to go to the inn, you're going to be charged like a gazillion gill. If you try to talk to people about espers, they'll be like, Oh no, we don't even know what that word means. But you can catch people casting magic. Like there's a woman who casts heal on her daughter. And there's a boy who's trying to light a shrub on fire. And eventually you'll go to meet the old guy at the edge of town. And and this is Strago. So now we get, to, we get to do our little character study here of the elderly blue mage. An elderly gentleman, pure of heart, and learned in the ways of monsters. Here is Stragomagus. He's a blue mage, which means he learns magic uh, from monsters. So if the right spells or abilities are used against them, he will learn them as spells. And otherwise, he's a, he's a mage, though we don't know that yet. You ask him about the espers, and he says, I don't know what that is. In fact, I'm not even familiar with that word. I have no idea what you're talking about. And he's yeah. trying to like get us to go away. But then a new theme starts up, and uh, a little girl comes in from the other room, and she says, Grandpa, who are these people? Are they friends? Can they use magic too? Hey, what a cute doggy!" Yeah.
0: <laughs> she apparently didn't get the, we're trying to lie to everybody memo.
1: <laughs> right, yeah. <that laughs> so, her introduction is, in her pictures, she captures everything. Forests, water, light, the very essence of life. And Realm is a I first of all I love her theme. In the same way that I love Rydia's theme, I've got a I have got i do not know what it is about Realm and Rydia's music. I don't know there's a there's a Soft isn't quite right, because neither of these characters is soft.
0: There but is a gentleness to it. To yeah, yeah and yeah. innocence, I would say. They're, they're, they're very pleasant melodies, but there's a strength to them as well. There's a, a, a wisdom to them. We've talked a lot about how the younger characters, we were just mentioning Terra and Shadow, uh, sometimes have a bit more wisdom than the older characters in certain ways, and Final Fantasy is good about that. but And, and also the characters themselves help drive that home that there you know she is this she's 10 years old and so she's got some innocence about her still but she's very aware of the dangers of the world she lives in and she's not got a filter on her does realm and <laughs> yeah. um, and it's pretty great that that she gets to you know she fits into that kind of palom and porum trope right. of of young magic user ico in final fantasy 9 just No sense of, uh, I've got to be worried about the rules or the societal norms. Uh, Don't have any of those problems yet.
1: Right. So, Strago tells her to go to her room. And she's like, no, I'm not going to my room. Uh, And she pets the doggy, and Shadow's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't touch the dog. He will rip your face off. But no. Interceptor is just fine with Realm, which is a hint. Yeah. uh, as, As to the relationship between Shadow and Realm. So eventually, uh, you know, Strago insists that she go to her room. So she does. And Interceptor follows her into a room and she closes the door. And Shadow's like, uh, what?
0: Yeah, what in the world? Yeah.
1: I have to think that Shadow at least had some idea that this might happen. Because he knows where he is and he knows who she is.
0: Yeah, he's just, you know, pretending.
1: But well but it's it's I, I got to imagine still you you've trained this dog to be your companion in battle and that he totally rolls over for this little girl. Yeah. Even if the little girl is possibly his daughter is still a little bit stunning.
0: Right. Cuz it's right. been what <laughs> 10 years. Right. Just to see the dog behave that way. And that the, yeah. the and I'll tell you dogs intrinsically numb. He can smell it. Right.
1: Yeah. Well, and it suggests that, you know, in the same way that Realm is perhaps has this unfiltered innocence, Interceptor knows who he likes. He's not going to pretend that he doesn't love this little girl. Right. So so there's a a nice parallel there between Realm and Interceptor. So Strago continues to insist that we don't know anything. This is just a backwater village. We can tell you nothing about your espers. So we're going to leave... Shadow has to call the Interceptor a few times to get him to come out of Realm's room. And we go to the inn, which now only costs one gill. And the innkeeper says, why not relax for a spell? A spell. (laughs) Relax for a spell. (laughs) (laughs) You're punny. So uh, everyone goes to bed, and in the middle of the night, Strago bursts in. A fire broke out while Realm was at a friend's house, and the house is burning down, and uh, you have to help me uh, rescue her. Shadow does not get up. Shadow, like, for some reason does not decide to take part in this in this rescue mission. But the other heroes do, and we go to the house, and it's quickly in, uh, revealed that the people of this land know magic, uh, and they try to put out the fires, but it's not quite working, apparently because they store a lot of fire rods in this building, which seems like a bad idea, but <laughs> yeah. whatever. So they, it doesn't work, so we go into the house, and we have to fight all these bombs and balloons, and these fire elementals. And after doing so, we we get to the spot where the where the boss is. You defeat the boss. And then you see Interceptor trying to drag Realm out of the burning building. And like there's some collapsing debris, and everyone falls unconscious except Interceptor. And Interceptor is there standing between our heroes and these fire elementals, trying to fight them off. And finally, Shadow appears. He drops in, and he assassinates the fire elementals. And he uses a smoke bomb to teleport everybody else out. I don't quite get how that works, but fine, whatever.
0: It's super cool ninja stuff. Who cares? That's right. was awesome.
1: <laughs> so everyone's safe. Strago is very grateful to our heroes for helping to rescue his granddaughter. He explains that this is the village of the mage warriors. We are the descendants of the people who learned magic from espers during the War of the Magi. But the normal people hated us, you know, hated our ancestors. So they found this place and founded this town. And, and that's why we can use magic. It's reduced magic compared to what we could, you know, what our ancestors could do, but it's still magic, so that's why we live off here by ourselves. Drago agrees we will help find the espers they are probably off in the mountains to the west. There's some strong magic there. Some people say that's where espers were first created. The realm wants to come, but Strago says no, because grandfathers are protective. Right. And she's 10 years old. <laughs> right. And Strago goes to thank Shadow. And Shadow says, don't misunderstand. I just wanted my dog back. So he's doing his own thing here.
0: (laughs) Such a badass.
1: And so Strago, Realm, and Terra go into the mountain. Shadow says, I'm going to search for the Espers in my own way. Realm wants to say goodbye to Interceptor, and so uh, Shadow has to call to Interceptor a couple times to get him to come with him, Mm -hmm. which is cute. And then there's a person who will say an interesting thing before you leave. They say Realm is not actually Strago's granddaughter, but rather the daughter of one of Strago's old friends. So there's that. Yeah. All right, so we make our way into the mountains. You can catch glimpses of somebody following you, like kinda like you could when you were in the uh, when you were at Mount Colts searching for Sabin. Eventually it's pretty obvious that it's Realm. Because you like, run right into her and she turns around and runs away at one point? Yeah. <laughs> She's not like,
0: super subtle about yeah. following you, but it's adorable.
1: Several episodes ago, we talked about Kefka mentioning the statues and how the statues were the key to his power. Or, or were going to be the key to his power. And we were wondering, what are the statues? Well, here we find some representations of the statues. These are not the statues, which I didn't fully understand the first time I played this game. Right. But rather, this is a sort of like an altar to the statues. This is a reminder And we get a bit of story here uh, where you can read the inscriptions on these representations of the statues. Basically, the birth of magic came from the warring triad, these three deific beings uh, that went to war in this world. And in so doing, humans who got in the way, or humans who were caught up in this, were transformed into espers. So espers were, thousands of years ago, or 8,000 years ago, I guess, were once humans. And so humans were transformed into espers through the magic of this warring triad. And eventually these, these they refer to them as goddesses, but I think only one of them is a goddess. And the one of them's a dragon, one of them's a, a, a god, I guess, or a masculine deity.
0: Yeah, it is interesting that it uses the, the word goddess. But I, yeah, I agree. There seems to be a bit of ambiguity about that. I, I think your word deity uh, probably fits... There's also this weird thing that I didn't remember because it's, it skimmed over pretty quickly, but going back and getting into this for the podcast was there was a short period of time where the Espers lived only as literal weapons. They were slaves right. to these goddesses or, or deific beings to the triad who were all fighting each other, and so they had no free will upon their initial inception. Espers had no free will. But uh, upon the conclusion of the war, and and again, this is one of those things that sort of skimmed over. It said, like, in a rare bit of clarity, uh, the goddesses, or or, again, deific beings, looks like decided if they continued to war, they were just going to destroy everything. And so they decided to kind of lock themselves and their powers away uh, by creating this. Balance, And in so doing, the espers got their free will and they had to promise the goddesses to uh, seal them away and keep the statues hidden so that uh, they're sort of delicate balance where the three of them are literally holding the, the most powerful sources, the source of all the magic in the world together by being enshrined in these again, as Ira said, statues cannot be messed with or there will be grave consequences. That is, uh, the balance of the world has been hanging by this thread that we did not even know existed.
1: Right. And so this little shrine we've come upon is a reminder to the Espers who lived in these mountains, don't forget we are the ones who, who are sealing away this power so the world can have some sort of balance. So we're having this revelation. We're getting a better understanding of the world when suddenly we're attacked by a giant purple squid.
0: <laughs> he does find himself in the most interesting situations.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah, Ultros is here. He is here to steal this shrine, to steal these statues. He says this will get Siegfried's attention. So uh, Ultros and Siegfried apparently are in a rivalry to steal various items or, or relics throughout the world. So we fight with Ultros... Halfway through the fight, Realm drops in, and this is a really weird interaction. She talks to Ultros, like Ultros is this cute little pet, and wants to draw Ultros' portrait.
0: She calls and him she, Ulti.
1: She calls him Ulti. Why don't you pose for me? And Ultros is like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> he's like, no, don't talk to me like that. I'm not one of your kiddie friends. And then Realm goes off and like sulks, and, and suddenly Terra and Locke are Scolding Ultros for making her feel bad.
0: Yeah, they're like shaming the giant purple octopus.
1: <laughs> so, speaking of characters who probably might have a weird American accent.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: or, or maybe weird is the wrong word, an overdone American accent. I could see Ultros having one of those. And eventually, Realm jo- joins the fight and uses her, her painting magic, which I think makes her a version of Bob Ross. Yeah. Uh, to to paint Ultros and make him hit himself with his own tentacle, and then he runs away.
0: Yeah, and he has this one like kind of sad line where he says, oh my God, is that what I am? Some ridiculous octopus? Yeah. Like he's seen himself for the first time, which gets at the heart of why Realm's powers are so troubling yeah. in a way. Show you yourself. And this mostly humorous character is kind of mortified for a moment by it, has a real right. like crisis of, of self and, and then runs off.
1: And he doesn't have any fourth wall moments in this uh, no. encounter, I don't think. No. Our heroes defeat Ultros, they move on and they finally find the espers and they're surrounded by the espers and it looks like there's going to be a fight and there's this kind of neat thing where uh, it's going to be uh, Locke and Terra. They, Locke says to Strago, get Realm and get the heck out of here. Mm -hmm. and they're going to. They're going to run away, but Espers are coming in from the other direction, so they're surrounded. And the three adults get back-to-back and put Realm between them, which is really... Like, for all that, she's going to be a, a player character and have a lot of power and is actually one of the most powerful mages you can have. She has one of the highest magic stats. The adults surround the child, and I really like that. Yeah. So they move to protect Realm, and there's a... He was referred to as the youth in the Esper's world. There's a, an Esper here named Yura. This was the same character who was talking to Maduin. It almost seemed like the apprentice gatekeeper. If Meduin's the gatekeeper, Yura was like the person standing at the gate, Yeah, uh, seemed to be helping out. He senses Terra's power, and they, there's a conversation. They say, uh, you know, we were at the gate. We were standing at the gate. We were ready to go out into the world to try to rescue our fellows who were kidnapped. Now, that was, you know, 17 some years ago. So did it really take you that long? Or do Espers just take that long to plan things? Or does time flow differently? It's not made clear to me. It seems kind of odd.
0: Yeah, they're like white uh, walkers. They take their time.
1: <laughs> that's fine. All right. So they were at the gate. So it was kind of a coincidence that Tarot was there trying to open the gate. So as soon as the gate was opened, they came through. And he says, once in your world, we lost control of our powers. And Strago hypothesizes that there must be something in the Esper world that helps Espers to control their power because Terra also explains that the first time she turned into an Esper, the first time she took her Esper form, she lost control. So there's something about the Esper world that lets them focus in a way that lets them them control themselves because once out in uh, in the human world, they lost it and their anger consumed them and they went to the Empire and they wrecked things. And... They feel bad about it. Like, they feel more bad about it than I think. The Emperor is saying he feels bad. I'm not yeah. buying it. But I buy it when Eura says, you know, we we feel awful about what happened. And Locke explains, well, the Empire is at least nominally trying, to, trying for peace. And Eura says, would they forgive us so easily?
0: Oh, that's so sad.
1: Yeah. And I have to think at least Leo would. And it's a good thing Leo is fronting this mission. Yeah. So the Esper's agree to come with our heroes to Thamassa. Everyone is gathered. Everyone who's who's come on the mission is gathered. The Esper's and uh, the Empire, as as represented by Leo and Celeste, uh, have a conversation. Yura says we've done what we've done is inexcusable, and Leo says, "Well, we what we've done is inexcusable. Uh, you know, we came very close to re-sparking the War of the Magi, but you know, we're going to have peace now. We're going to make this work." And Celeste and Locke have a moment where it seems like they're going to make up and, and uh, possibly have a moment, uh, though they get embarrassed when they realize everybody's looking at them. Yeah. And it's, it's almost like the end of a sitcom. Because like, Realm makes a comment about, man, they're really into each other, and, and Strago tries to shush her, and it's like, everybody does that sitcom laugh. Or, you know what? Everything's going to be fine, and we're going to have a freeze frame, and, and we're, we're fine now.
0: Yeah, they really dangle this whole thing in front of you. Like the credits could have rolled right there and have been like, nice, okay, cool. And then they they made peace with the monsters and and lived in harmony from there on out.
1: Right, the espers made peace with the monsters and everything's going to be
0: fine. (laughs) Well done.
1: But then we have that Kefka laugh again and Kefka invades the town of Thamasa and he attacks the espers immediately and he's, he's figured out how to turn them into magicite with, within a moment and they, they set fire to the town and Yura and the other espers there are turned to magicite Kefka says I am to take this magicite back to his excellency which reveals that Gestal was lying this whole time we're not here for peace So eventually, uh, everyone else is knocked out and it comes down to Leo and Kefka.
0: After an absolute slaughter of espers and Kefka just laughing the whole time because he's insane.
1: So we get to take control of General Leo, which is cool. He becomes a party member for a while here. So, you know, you can go into the menu and you can see his uh, portrait and... Uh, you can't see his gear, but like you can see his skills, I think. Anyway, the point is, I mean, Leo gets into a fight with Kefka, and you can fight Kefka, and he's got uh, Leo's got this shock mechanic, which is pretty cool. That uh, eventually, I think Beatrice has in Final Fantasy IX. Yeah, yeah. So that's pretty cool. And and since she's kind of a paladin type, I like to think of Leo as a paladin. You fight Kefka, you defeat Kefka, everything's gonna be fine. But then Kefka gets up. And when Leo's back is turned, he, he leaps at General Leo, and because they're sprites, it's not quite clear to me what's going on, but I'm pretty sure he just stabs Leo in the back and gets a, gets a death blow in there, and, and Leo goes down.
0: Yeah, literally stabs him in the back. And these guys have been colleagues for a very long time. They were raised together in the empire and it's been clear from the beginning that kefka had no respect for leo and that leo had no respect for kefka but i still think that he's shocked and this really is a turning point or or a, a point of no return for kefka where this is really the moment now he'd already decided long ago that he doesn't care about any of this empire stuff but as i was saying before this is when it doesn't even matter anymore it's not about empire it's not about gestal it's not about the traditional sense of power this is about kefka becoming a god now that's what right. this is about him right. having all of the power and being able to decide literally who lives and who dies and this is one of the first moments of him turning on what you might consider one of his own and just straight up murdering another member another general of the empire because he's getting in the way a little bit of his pursuit of absolute power. And it's also a really sad moment because it's also the death of any hope of that peace and of any hope that the Empire might not be (laughs) this big, huge, horrible thing. And of a friend uh, who has just been giving advice to our main character, one of our main characters. And you know we've we've wanted to believe in the the redeemable qualities that there are good people in the empire but the good people of of the other side are now fewer and fewer and you know and in the chaos of all of this Kefka considers he's won the day and moves on now to find the the statues because that is where he will ascend to god level and not just have more magical power at this point he's basically invulnerable to people trying to attack him with all of the magic, but he wants to become a god. And so he needs to find the statues and uh, understands that uh, they exist in this kind of, again, a a sealed away magical place that he needs to use his powers to raise it from the ground, creating the floating continent. absolutely insane scene which again in modern graphics or on an hbo show trying to show this would just be amazing of a literal giant continent-sized chunk of earth raising up out of the ground and then magically floating over the rest of the planet um breathtaking sight to behold And uh, our heroes, then we we return to them once they've collected themselves. Uh, They've built a grave for General Leo, and they take a moment to mourn him. Celeste says she feels like she had so much more to learn from Leo, who it's clear she seems to think of as an older brother. Even Cyan comes out and says he was the best soldier they had. There's a respect for him on that level, Uh, but... With that being gone, the the goal has become clear we have to take the airship to the floating continent and stop Kefka from getting to the statues and doing whatever it is he plans to do with them.
1: Before we go to the floating continent, I want to draw a couple parallels. One, long before there were there were internet conspiracies about how to Resurrect, Aerith. Uh. I read plenty of internet conspiracies, internet theories about how to resurrect General Leo and get him to join the party.
0: Right, because there's that moment where you have him in battle. So,
1: yeah. Now it's not you know it's not possible. It's not a thing you can do. But I think that goes to, I, th- I think that speaks to the kind of interesting character he he is. Right. Also, uh, floating continent. We've seen this before. We saw it in Final Fantasy III, right? There's all these float. Or you start out on the floating continent in uh, Final Fantasy IV with the moon, you know, that second moon sort of looming over us the whole time. That sort of parallels the meteor of Final Fantasy VII. So I think uh, I think that's interesting that the the floating continent is actually kind of like the the meteor hanging over Midgard in Final Fantasy VII. It's this looming presence, right? A more literal sort of sword of Damocles. The the disaster hanging over us, waiting to fall, is, I think, a fun and interesting trope that they use over and over again.
0: Lavos, sin.
1: Yep. Good.
0: Yep. So uh, there are some other little things you can go and do and get little bits of extra dialogue uh, around the world and meet some people here. It is your last chance, spoiler, to be in the world of Balance. Balance. Uh, and do a couple of things. But for the most part, you head off to the floating continent. You're attacked by monsters on the way. You have to fight them from the airship. It's a big, long dungeon with incredibly powerful, magical beasts roaming the floating continent. You do
1: have to fight Ultros and Chupon.
0: Right, that's on the, uh, on the airship on the way up. Yeah, he introduces yeah. Chupan, his fiery monster friend. Again, Uh not really uh explained, but there he is. Nope, there he is. One of the inspiring, I'm going to use that word, magical beasts that you face off against on the floating continent is, of course, Atma weapon. We've talked about that a couple of times. The the weapons in this world aren't really explained. They're given a fantastic origin in Final Fantasy VII that parallels kaiju, uh, Godzilla stories. In this case, it's just a giant monster, and it's interesting that it's called Atma in this game because they didn't have enough space to call it Ultima. Uh, In future iterations, it would be called Ultima Weapon, and Ultima Weapon is a a character in one way or another. It has many different forms. that shows out throughout Final Fantasy, and there are two different versions of it in this game, which is
1: interesting. Right? Yeah, there's the sword, and then there's the monster. Uh, am I recalling correctly that in Final Fantasy 2, Minwu goes to find the Ultima spell? Is that the right spell?
0: I think that's correct.
1: Okay, yeah. So just the fact that Ultima, you know, this this super powerful uh, thing shows up again and again in Final Fantasy is, is just another example of how they, they lean into what they've done, you know, the successful things they've done. They do it again because it's interesting that in, you know, the sort of multiverse theory that... Ultima shows up again and again, and and that's one of the connecting threads.
0: Right. So after running your way through those beasts, you you finally find at the statues, the statues themselves, the goddesses, the deities, Emperor Gestal and Kefka, uh, clearly plotting a way to use this power to complete their takeover of the world. Uh, our heroes obviously arrive with a little bit of hey, st- hey stop that. Um. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Leave them alone. We read the inscriptions. They're supposed to sleep now. <laughs> right. Uh,
0: and, and then stuff gets absolutely insane. Uh, they're, they're a disagreement comes about again philosophically between Gestahl and Kefka. Gestahl just wants to rule ever, over everybody and use this power as a kind of threat. Kefka immediately wants to just start destroying things and they get into this disagreement. They they It comes to a fight. Gestahl tries to destroy <laughs> Kefka who's just far too powerful at yeah. this point. He's killed too many espers, absorbed their power. He's also standing in the field of magic that's uh, being created by the statues. And so all of Gastal's attempts to attack Kefka are completely null and void, and Kefka very easily kills the Emperor and tosses him off the floating continent, off the edge.
1: Holy cow.
0: And you would have thought that the death of Emperor Gastal would have been super cool and awesome. Kind of like the death of President Shinran in Final Fantasy VII. You're like, hey, isn't that what we wanted this whole time? But right. why don't we feel at all better? No.
1: Yeah, it, not, not only is it not terribly satisfying, it's like deliberately anticlimactic, which is really cool because it's, you know, Gestalt, while he may have been the impetus for the, you know, the, the rise of fascism in this world, He's no longer the main threat. He may never have been, and I think that's really, I think that's a cool move from a storyline point of view.
0: There's also another good, crazy Kefka line in here, like uh, in the category of Son of a Submariner, where he says, as Gastal is trying to run from these giant bolts of magic that Kefka's flinging at him, he says, run, run, or you'll be well done. Just (laughs) (laughs) guys out of his ever-loving mind. And murdering the last ally he had left and tossing him off the floating continent like a piece of garbage.
1: Yeah. And also, I think it it shows his cleverness that he was standing in the field of magic to protect himself, which suggests he did more homework than the emperor did on the nature of the the deific statues, the Warring Triad.
0: Right. Well, he was more into magic. He He always knew that magic was going to be the key. Uh, and then there's this crazy moment where, in all of this chaos, as, as he's kind of embracing that he's just killed the emperor and laughing about that because that's what he does. Celeste leaps out, stabs him
1: right in the gullet. Yeah,
0: yeah. Thank you, and Celeste. Kefka is shocked to find yeah. that he can still bleed. He his can still his bleed. surprise at his own blood is—I'll never forget that. He's just. What?
1: <laughs> I think he expected to be beyond human at this point. He expected to be beyond injury, and Celeste, our hero, shows he is not.
0: Yeah. Uh, but but of course, uh, this doesn't kill him. He slashes her aside, presumably with magic or uh, attack, and throws her. She's hanging now off the edge of the continent. the The rest of our party, with all of this going on, has also been. More or less blown back much the same way that they were when Terra first turned into an Esper they 're just being pinned down by the amount of magic and and power flying about, and Kefka goes about moving the statues, which yeah.
1: disrupting the balance
0: disrupts the balance of the entire world, and the continent begins to shake apart, magic starts flying everywhere. And it's clear that we're in for some major destruction here. In the course of all of this, one of the people who couldn't come on the continent with us, presumably from out of the airship, Shadow. Yes. all the people to have a heroic moment right now. It's not Terra or Edgar or Cyan, but Shadow. Shadow. Who leaps into the middle of all of it. And tries to start moving the statues back in place. Back into place. Uh, um, this man understands balance. That's he, he what I'm thinking. He certainly does. Uh, and, again, has, has kind of, in many ways, though we know not entirely, has given up on himself. And so he's going, you know what? This is my moment. Uh, I'm I'm going to die here now today in this moment, but I'm going to put these statues back and I'm going to let these people who I've come to tolerate. <laughs> right. Right. Uh escape with their lives. And and that's what that's what he does. He shouts out, "Get out of here. I'll be fine." He promises, "I'll you'll see me again." But mm-hmm. he's trying to push the statues into place. is still there and and our party has to run. We, we don't have time to wait around and see what happens. And this is a cool moment too where literally on the map of the floating continent as you're trying to escape in gameplay mode, the map is falling apart and just dropping yeah. out of the sky breaking apart around you it's super intense but we make it but but you make it to to the drop-off point the airship Uh shows up and you've got another moment of choice here
1: right because the timer's going down
0: right you've only got five minutes or whatever it is to escape
1: right And
0: and you can either jump onto the airship immediately or wait for shadow
1: well drew what would you do
0: I always waited for Shadow. you wait for Shadow. My favorite character it well, was of certainly back in the day. Um, you,
1: well, and, and part of the point, I think this helps to emphasize that big theme of we are in this together. We're not going right. to leave him behind.
0: No way. He's a part of the family now, too.
1: You're damn right. You wait for Shadow. And you have to wait for Shadow until there's like only five seconds left. And it's kind of like if you don't know, because you, you have the option a couple times. Right. right.
0: It'll keep asking you. You sure you don't want to jump off of this <laughs> continent that's in the sky, but not going to be for much longer? Uh, but yeah. And if you jump early, you'll never see shadow again.
1: That's right. But if you wait with like five seconds to go, shadow will come tearing down the, the way saying, what are you doing? Let's go. Yeah. Uh, and we, we jump onto the airship and all hell for breaks. all
0: the good that did us. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, then we get, Probably the most impressive scene on the Super Nintendo. Can I say that? Do I feel...
1: I I don't know what I could point to to, uh, to be a counterclaim. It is... It's intense. The world is not fully destroyed, but wrecked pretty hard. It is broken.
0: It's completely reshaped, and we get scenes of... Continents breaking apart, earthquakes uh-huh. that people fall into the the chasms, rivers yeah. of fire and lava. I mean, yeah. biblical, apocalyptic stuff, presumably. I don't know how many people live in the world, but right. maybe half the world's population, millions of people die.
1: Right. There's that one scene where like it breaks apart and somebody falls down in and then it smashes together again. Yeah. That's pretty wild.
0: And so we see all of this across all of these towns we've been to. People running around, dying, stuff on fire. As I said, continents breaking up and shifting apart. And then we get a pullback shot, and we see the entire planet basically on fire. And we see continents moving away from each other. This is a true cataclysm, Uh, and. Absolutely. Like, and then once I guess you could say if there's some de- dust settling, the next shot we see is it opens up and the world looks completely different is the ocean, which has been entirely miscolored. It's like this right. purplish red, maybe out of all the blood that's in it, but also presumably toxins and, and whatever else was released and Homes and, and factories that fell into oceans and rivers. And it's just, I, I don't know what even else to compare it to. Final Fantasy fourteen when there's a cataclysm and worlds are destroyed. But we don't see this level of destruction in, in fiction very often. It's, it's been said many times, but typically the goal is to prevent this from happening. And the heroes do. You, you stop right. the bad guy from destroying the world. Or taking over the world
1: right but in this case our heroes lose and I think it's particularly uh, uh, poignant when so the world falls apart but so does the blackjack that ship tears apart in the middle of the sky and you see our heroes trying to hold on to each other and they just they can't they're scattered
0: yeah it's like it's hit right down the middle and like half the party on one side half the party on the other and the first person that falls through that middle crack is Celeste and then yeah. everyone else falls apart and is scattered. Like, no one hangs on. And Setzer's the last. Like, he's hanging onto the wheel. Setzer's right. the last to fall. And so, yeah, we don't know if anybody's alive, if, if people are dead. Talk about a cliffhanger. Like, if, again, if this were the end of a, a season, probably, on, on our HBO show or our Netflix show, this would be the end of, like, season two. Right. And, and it and you just, it's so brutal. It's so well done, though. Uh, I've rarely ever before or after been as shocked as I was the first time we played this for a moment in fiction.
1: And thus ends Final Fantasy VI. (laughs) uh,
0: Wouldn't that be something?
1: But there is perhaps uh, a ray of hope in there somewhere, which I suppose we'll have to get to
0: next time. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and thank you to everyone who's reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at FFWeeklyPod, or you can email us at FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. We are also now on Patreon. While the podcast is still free to listen to via archive.org, if you want to download it on your regular podcast services, you can do so for as little as $1 a month. You can also listen for free on Patreon. Join us next time when we enter the world of ruin.